Hey gang, it's John. We are finally back with another deep dive. Took a while, didn't it? Uh, this time we wanted to invite back one of Yan and I's favorite guests, Walter Egan. Now, let me tell you, when you do one of these, there's always sort of a decision you have to make. Are you going to talk about the really big album that everyone knows? Or do you want to shed some light on kind of a hidden gem that's in somebody's catalog that people deserve to know more about? Well, that's the direction we go with this one. We're talking about Walter's 1983 album, Wild Exhibitions, which, believe it or not, is one of the great lost power pop or new wave albums of the 80s. And you wouldn't think that because Walter is the magnet and steel guy. Everyone thinks of him as sort of that sort of soft rock thing from the late 70s, but that's really not what Walter is. And especially if you go back and you listen to all of his stuff, you know it gets broader than that. But this uh, wild exhibition is a really totally different thing, but it is great. If you're a fan, we talk about it in here. If you're a fan of bands like Marshall Crenshaw or Cheap Trick or Greg Kinn or whatever, that's what this is. It includes the last song that he really had any success with called Full Moon Fire. But it is just, it deserves to be found. It's kind of obscure. You're not going to find it on a streaming thing. You got to go buy the vinyl or buy the CD. But uh, anyway, we love Walter. We managed in this conversation to just sort of glide over the entire career. So yes, we spend time on wild exhibitions, but we really touch on everything, including Lindsay and Stevie, uh, what happened after this album came out, the rest of his life, all of it. We really love Walter. We're so grateful that he talks to us. I hope you guys enjoy this. To prepare for this, I listened to it all again. And, uh, you know, I, I think it stands up really well. I think we did a good job on it. And, uh, you know, there's some uh, epic performances by uh, by David Lindley, certainly, and mm-hmm. by some of Lindsay's uh, contributions are pretty cool, too. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I'm always torn when I do these between focusing on the big album that most people know, or do we shine a light on the, the hidden gem that maybe more people should know about, you know? Right. Yeah, well, you know, it was reissued on CD, and they did a remastering of it that I'm not sure I'm totally um, mm-hmm. on board with, mm-hmm. but it's nice that it exists on that uh, format, you know? Yeah. Um, That's, I, I think, the one whether, I have. Yeah, well... That's Renaissance, uh, I mm-hmm. think, would be the label if it's uh, the CD I'm thinking of. That's the one I have. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, you know, it, I don't think it's quite as warm as the album was. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, old school. I put the old in old school. Here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a fun album to do. It was a, you know, in many ways, it was a uh, kind of a rebirth for me because. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a six-album deal on Columbia, and, um, you know, they were great. The first couple of albums, they were totally behind it, and I put the big machine to work, the big Columbia machine, which, you know, can grind away. I and mean, I didn't steal. It took, you know, like six months to uh, achieve its uh, apogee there, as you might really? call it. Huh. Yeah, no, it was released in March, and it peaked in September, so it, it took half a year to do that and then it lingered kind of canceling out what I felt should have been the, the follow-up or was the follow-up but should have been a bigger song which was Hot Summer Nights mm-hmm. and then after that the guy who I had signed with at Columbia a guy named Don Ellis he heard these demos that we did and, and 
you know, this was 1979, and it was just before all the home recording mm. boom happened. And, and so we, we took this big Steven 16-track machine, put it into Stevie's old house, which she had just vacated. She was putting it on the market, mm. and we actually rented it for three or four months to do the recording. So we had the whole house to ourselves. It was this amazing mansion that was built by silent film store star Rod LaRock for his huh, uh, really? for his uh, yeah for his Paramore uh, Velma Banky and uh, <laughs> it was up in the Hollywood Hills. It was you know it was idyllic uh-huh. and it was you know we're riding the crest of hey you know yeah it's all happening now it's never going to stop uh, yeah. you know People Magazine was touting me as people to watch in 1979 and you know it was great and uh, and the demos i think they were very uh, respectable and of course this also was a nod to the you know the punk uh, kind of new wave era that was coming on and uh, you know doing it ourselves yeah. and, and and when we had you know a good six months on the road in 78 so the band was really tight, and uh, we were having a good time with it. And, you yeah. know? and so by the time we finished the record in 79, Don Ellis had exited Columbia and gone to RCA. And so the next up in the A&R department was this guy, Jack Crago. And Jack heard the record, and he went, hey, I don't hear Stevie Nicks on here. What's going on? I said, oh, God. You know, you didn't sign Stevie and Lindsay right. stuff. And, and, right. And anyway, so, and so, you know, I think that the uh, Hi-Fi album got uh, kind of shortchanged mm-hmm. because of that. And then I was ready to break the six-album deal at that point, and it was like, well, if Columbia is going to bury me, I might as well find another place to uh, mm-hmm. stay above ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was convinced by this uh, A&R man on the West Coast named Michael Dilbeck, who said, uh, no, no, I'm going to put my ass on the line for you. I'm going to make this happen. And we, so we contracted Earl Mankey, who had been working with the Beach Boys and with a band called 2020, who were, mm-hmm. you know, they had mm-hmm. the edginess of, of today, as it were. You know, I liked Earl, but he had a tendency to record with the, fluorescent lights on and with headphones on so yeah. he was in his own little bubble there it was it wasn't the same as working with Stevie and Lindsay yeah so yeah duh. especially Lindsay of course yeah um and one so good thing though point, Last Stroll has my favorite Walter Egan song on it Motel Broken Hearts oh well there you go you're yeah. a man of good taste there you go I love that song yeah that's great yeah. Well, I'm uh, glad you even know about that of course you know and and so at that point it took us a year to break that deal with Columbia, and then about another year to uh, to get the next deal in place. I had been talking to a guy named Les Gardner at uh, at Atlantic, and we almost came to a deal with Atlantic Records at that point. But then Danny Bramson, who had moved from uh, running the Universal Amphitheater to running Tom Petty's label Backstreet, made us an offer and. And, you know, my my struggle at that point was to be seen as more than just like a crooner and like mm-hmm. a, you know, a teeny bumper, teeny whatever that, that yeah. I felt like I was being pegged as. And I wanted to show that I was really a rock and roller and a rocker. So, and mm-hmm. of course, Danny 
wanted to show that he could make a record succeed that wasn't that Tom Petty record. Mm. And so, you know, we could be a symbiotic uh, pair there and uh, try to help each other out. And it was, you know, it was a nice deal and it was a good good start. And we did that crazy video for uh, mm-hmm. Full Moon Fire, which, uh, you know, I can't help but think presaged thriller somehow. I think you know. might be right. Yeah. I yeah, was curious yeah. about that. I rewatched that, you know, to get ready to talk. Did you, did that ever, do you remember ever seeing that on MTV? Cause I don't, but I, it was such uh, a great video. Full moon fire. For the time. Yeah. Full moon fire. Yeah. They played it once or twice, you know, and okay. during that time when this record came out, I was a fill in VJ on MTV. When oh, that's right. Music. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, you know, thinking, great, I'll get a chance to plug my new record, and yeah, and they had they would have no part of it. it all those songs were pre-programmed, and you know, my only uh, latitude there was to be able to talk about the different videos as they came mm-hmm. up, yeah, you know, and throw in kind of subtle remarks about my mm-hmm. own records and stuff, you know, and, and it was right around the time that I got married to. Tammy, who of course is in the middle of the back cover of uh, Wild Expedition. Oh, that's who that is. Okay. Yeah, that's that's my. Uh, that was my bride at that Got time. Got it. And, okay. And okay. so, you know, it was uh, it was a heady time. It, yeah. Uh, and because at that time, the guy who had been at Atlanta, Les Gardner, was then at uh, at MTV, and he said, "Well, do you want to come in and?" Because I was pitching them at MTV because it was very new, and mm-hmm. I wanted to do a show that would, you know, at that point they were about to buy the uh, the rights to the Shindig and mm-hmm. Hullabaloo mm-hmm. videos, and I wanted to, you know, be the one who pointed out that the old stuff was like the new stuff. Yeah, it was not, and so, and he thought that was a good idea, but he said, "Well, why don't you come and fill in for Mark Quinn for a week?" So, nice. I got to. Uh, to go and do that and and you know it was a week's worth of videos but it was filmed in two days yeah you yeah know, one show after another that's what i've heard yeah <clears throat> but, you so. know and it was kind of fun it was kind of weird for me i uh was a little self-conscious about the whole thing at the time but it was you know <laughs> well now you know you've made history i mean those those early days of mtv at, at, no one knew exactly what was going on, but we know now that whatever it was, it worked, you know? Yeah, no, it really did. Yeah. It, it changed everything, you know? It did. And, it did. Uh, but of so course, let me, uh, oh, go ahead. You know, you know please. Well, I was going to ask you, I've got so many questions about things like, you know, what, like for instance, what, what, what is Wild Exhibitions? I know that's a lyric. <laughs> in mm-hmm. Animal Lover, and we're, we're going to go it track is. by track, so we'll get there in a minute, but why did yeah. you name the album that? Because it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, I'll be honest. Well, it does have my initials. Oh, I think sure. that's part of the, uh, the reason mm. why I went with it. And, you know, I, I've, I was an art major in college, and I did the exhibition, and I had my my drawings as the uh, inner sleeve. And, okay. You know, I don't know if, if you get that, but I don't know, I don't think you get that on the on the CD. Do you? you don't. No, you yeah, don't get so much. You've never, I mean, I can uh, take pictures of this and send them to you. Oh, I'd like that. Yeah, please. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, yeah, you miss a lot with without the inner sleeve yeah. on this record. Okay. Um, they're very, you know, kind of cheeky drawings. I would do these little, well, you'll see. I can, okay, uh, yeah, send them. Yeah. Um, yeah but, 
And but anyway, so that's the really cover. the basis for the wild exhibition. Okay. And uh, it was uh, likening it to a painting exhibit, that Got kind it. of thing as well. Okay. But uh, yeah, and yeah, the cover is a little like it. I've I've stared at this cover so many times to figure out exactly what's going on. I mean, it's basically a picture of you. It looks like holding your guitar, but your face or your head has been cut out in the shape <laughs> of a heart, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, um, let me just, first of all, the photographer who did this was Moshe Braca, and Moshe did my first album, the uh, Fundamental Role album. He was, uh-huh. you know, as, he was fairly uh, avant-garde. Um, he, he was an immigrant from Israel, and so he had this mm-hmm. accent, and he was, Walter, Walter, chin down, chin down, you know, he was always, <laughs> you know, ordering us around, and, uh, but he was, you know, he was very creative. So uh-huh. this was, Again, this was a period when, you know, New Wave and that whole, that was the, the flavor of the year, more mm-hmm. or less. Yeah. And so that was kind of where we were going with the idea of it. And these were mirrors that were cut out, and um, I'm not sure how we got the angle that mm. way, and I don't think it was pasted. I don't think it was cut and pasted. Oh, um, okay. So oh. I think it was just an offset mirror, Okay. And then, yeah. And Because it kind of looks look, like that you have a python around your neck. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you have to look close to really figure yeah. it out. It looks like Walter has a giant snake crawling around his neck and shoulders. <laughs> I have uh, lost my head over this. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was. And then the little pictures that are pasted on the other side of it. It Yeah, it was all, he was, you know, very odd guy but he was a great photographer okay and uh, and of course the back cover being a, a nod to the cheerleaders on the first album right which uh, was the whole you know okay young walter album and uh, and that's tammy and who uh-huh. i married in 1984 and her sister jennifer her sister okay was about uh, nine years younger actually half sister and so, uh, yeah, so, okay. it, uh, you know, and they, of course, if you look at the video, at, when we get to the, the movie theater there, mm-hmm. Jennifer is walking around in the back and my mother-in-law was walking around, <laughs> you know, we get the whole family and the whole thing and they're walking oh, around in there. Yeah, Jennifer actually was walking around. She was serving the drinks and she smiled with the, the vampire teeth. Ah, oh, that's it. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, um, yeah, okay. And, and so it was a funny video to make. I don't know yeah. if I'm going to go there yet. Um, no, but, well, let me let me cover one other, two other things yeah, just about sure. the, the album in general. Whenever I do these things, I try to do as much research as I can to give, you know, how many it yeah. sold and highest chart position, but there's not a lot of information out there about wild exhibitions. No, it has sort of been swallowed up in the, uh, in the politics of... Backstreet Records and MCA mm. Records, and you know, I don't know if that fire that uh, they're just talking about now that happened 11 years ago mm-hmm. had anything to do with losing the, mm. the deal on that. But interesting. All I can say about that is that the background of of the the support for this record happened with Danny Bramson being my champion, mm-hmm. and I was his baby. And then he wanted to be president of MCA, and so did Irving Azoff. Mm-hmm. Irving won. 
Irving basically canceled any more about the record. He, I wonder. You know, the, the next single was just pulled, the plug was pulled on it, and that was basically it. Yeah. And so, you know. I wondered. Because I just watched uh, a couple of nights ago, they have this show, Classic Albums, that comes on the Axis TV channel sometimes. and. Mm-hmm. They did one for Damn the Torpedoes. It's old because Tom was still in it, even though he's not alive. And there was Danny Bramson from Reckless uh, Rec- or Backstreet Records, I'm sorry, talking about how badly he wanted Tom on his label. And when I look up Backstreet, they really only were around for about four years. And yeah, so I assume right. this must have... And, and they ended, as far as I can tell, in 83, which is when your album came out. So I wondered if this being sucked up into the bigger thing is what doomed... You know the focus being on your album and really trying to push it and make it, make it big. Yeah, very much so. He, uh, okay. Irving didn't really want to, because it was a fairly bitter struggle that they fought to become president. Mm-hmm. They said nasty things about one another, mm-hmm. and so when it was time to promote Danny's baby, he was not about to do that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, and and yeah, I mean it was Tom Petty was man with men without hats. Mm-hmm. It was yep. me and Tammy told me the other day she remembered them signing Nils Lofgren. Yeah, but I he didn't was there remember too. that. And he and I go back years too. Yeah, we both played in D.C. at the same time. No way. So, um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about you. You know, we were talking earlier about how this was this. So here's my feeling: is that you go from being this. I mean, Magnet and Steel is probably sort of seen as like a soft rock sort of. Uh, you know. Yeah this great soft rock hit but wild exhibitions to me is one of the best p- pure power pop albums ever oh, every song on yeah. it and i was listening i uh you know if you're a fan of people like marshall crenshaw or cheap right. trick or greg mm-hmm. kin or those types of people you would mm-hmm. love an album like this and that was well, what, that's was what i always felt yeah i always yeah. felt that that was kind of my ilk at that point and you know nick lowe and uh yes nick and Lowe, Teddy for that matter you know yes Seventy-eight. I did a tour with Petty for two weeks in September, and uh, this was before he had broken through with the, the top forty kind of yeah. songs. And so, and I had, and I hadn't broken through with the album, mm. so we we kind of complemented one another that way. Mm-hmm. And I had opened for him one night, then he'd opened for me the next night. We did that for two weeks, and I've always mm. felt like, you know, this is this it is makes it sense. Be. Yeah. yeah. So I wondered but, if that transition yeah. for you, did it feel natural? Did you feel, was this an, I, you know, no, I hope this doesn't sound insensitive, but you're, you know, you were just saying that you had just put out four albums and there was diminishing returns in terms of commerciality yeah. with those. And is this a, uh, is this you like, well, I better do what the, you know, what the kids are doing today, or is it a more honest, sincere reflection of where you were at at that time? Well, aside from the uh, haircut and the photo on the front, mm. I felt like it was very much really? right. Sit right in. I don't think I the songs are that different than no. than Last Roll. You know, I mean, that was the whole. My struggle was to show that I was a rocker. You know, yeah. and that was, and it's been that way basically, mm-hmm. except for people who see me live and then they go, "Oh, well, mm-hmm. no, you play hard and you play guitar and all that stuff." So yeah, even to this day, I did some shows last summer with this tour called Rock the Yacht mm-hmm. which of course takes advantage of that the new rebranding of that music from the yeah. you know the softer sounds of the mid 70s 
70s and mid 80s mm-hmm. and uh, that was with uh, Stephen Bishop and yeah. Peter Beckett from Player and mm-hmm. uh, you know Elliot uh, Lurie from Looking mm-hmm. Glass and Ambrosia especially was mm-hmm. the the house band you know and yeah. people even in that context I got to do maybe three songs at mm-hmm. most and and I would do Hot Summer Nights as well and you know, and I always get comments. It's like, oh wow, you play guitar. That's good, you know. So um, yeah, well, yeah. you know, people want to pigeonhole you, and yeah. they want you to be, you know. And and the thing mm-hmm. is, of course, now this is a whole other discussion of of trying to get new songs across to these fans who claim loyal allegiance to me for all these years. Right. And you know, and but I understand that. Full Moon, I mean that, uh, well, Full Moon Fire to a certain degree, but Magnet and Steel has this place in their memory, and it's, yeah. and it's tied to their life in that, in their time. And, and of course they want to hear that, and they want to hear it the way that the record sounded. And, sure. And I, you know, I'm all for that, because I went to see the Everly Brothers in the 90s, and I wanted them to do all those ballads, mm. and they just zipped through them, and they made like a medley of that. Really? Like, yeah, I just was like, oh, I've man. seen people do that. that. Yeah, yeah. nuts. Um, and, you know, okay. and that's the, that's the uh, struggle for someone like me, who has basically the one song, mm-hmm. and you got to play it, and, and of course... But after a while, it's like, well, you know, there have been three reggae covers of Magnet and Steel. How about this? You know, <laughs> but people don't really want to hear that. <laughs> oh, man. Do you but, ever you get know, to just... What am I put... complaining about? Well, true, I guess. But do you ever get to just put your name on a marquee and play for 45 minutes and play all, you know, all of the different sides of Walter Egan? Oh, yeah, I do. I have a band here in Franklin. Okay. The alternative band. Yep. Okay. And uh, we play locally at uh, you know places like Kimbrough's or mm-hmm. I play occasional gigs up in Nashville. But uh, yeah, no, and I'll do like two hours basically. Oh, of, good. Of, okay. You know the full gamut of songs people haven't heard and songs yeah. from the last three releases that most people haven't heard and mm-hmm. uh, you know there's varying degrees. But yeah, no, I do. And from this album, I've always done Full Moon Fire, maybe, maybe, especially those. Mm-hmm. You know? Good. Okay. And, and so, you know. Okay. It's, it, and that's, it is tough, you know, because I still write. And it's yeah. to find the motivation to say, why am I writing another song when I've got all these that people don't know? Mm-hmm. It's like I, I started writing songs when I was 16, and I haven't really stopped. It's that's just what you do. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, I uh, let me put in a plug for anyone who doesn't know. A couple of years ago, you put out True Songs, uh, an Very album good. of new material, and you gave me a, an advanced copy of that. And I loved it. And I want to point out two songs in particular: Crazy Rain, track one. Mm-hmm. I loved it, and uh, that's R E I G N. And at the time, it felt so prophetic because we had just got a new president, and we didn't mm-hmm. know what was coming. And now it feels downright factual so thank you, um, thank you. yes thank you. so i love that song and then track four is called old photographs and it's mm-hmm. a beautiful little ballad i love those two songs well thank you i appreciate sure. that yeah i mean i like I the whole album are... but i hope people will seek those out especially well i always do actually both of those in my shows good and so yeah no it gets across people mm-hmm. very much respond to old photographs um and crazy rain Maybe a little subtle, but I think more and more people are understanding my 
my thrust uh, there, as well, it were. Hey, people can read it however they want, I guess. But uh, yeah, well, anyway, I think sometimes I, I should write out my lyrics. You know, I mean, even uh, the second verse in Crazy Rain. You know, I was so tired, I had a dream that I was sleeping. I always thought that that was a really funny line. Uh huh. And nowadays, when I introduce the song, I'll often just say that, and people will laugh, and I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah, okay. No, I appreciate that that you uh, asked about that because, yeah, no, I, you know, this Rock the Yacht tour that I did felt like a victory lap. If anything, mm -hmm. it's like good. easy gig, good money, mm -hmm. really nice venues but most of the time i'm slogging away with my four-piece band and, mm -hmm. and doing as much of my catalog as i can squeeze in there and well, so people in franklin sort of have an appreciation of of the wider variety of the song good good mm -hmm. um i i've had most of the people you just mentioned on the show steven elliot uh burley from ambrosia and uh yeah. And I, I'm of the opinion, I mean, I understand how it must feel for you guys. The whole night is about beautiful nostalgia. So they're not, oh, yeah. those people are not necessarily wanting to hear things they don't already know. But I am so grateful that someone coined the phrase Yacht Rock and turned it into something fun. Because it, mm -hmm. gives, it gives this new life to people like you. I mean, it, it really does. Yeah, and you don't think of that soft, exactly, and you don't yeah. think necessarily of that soft rock as being yeah. fun. But you give people a bunch of sailor hats and you know mm -hmm. boxes of wine or whatever, and let them mm -hmm. have a good time. And they, and it's sure. it everything is different. It's all cast in a new light, and it gives you guys a new lease on life. And I am so grateful for that. You know, I I agree. I'm I'm there right with you. Good. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the melodic nature of this music because mm -hmm. almost all of them have really good strong melodies yeah. at least the songs we did in these shows and uh, yeah people respond to that and and where songs have a little bit something that they're trying to say and mm -hmm. yeah you know it, it's not uh, necessarily in vogue these days but it's mm -hmm. it's nice that that's the slice of the pie that people are responding to it you know yeah, yeah and it gets a, a serious channel and Mm -hmm. All of the thing, but you know, of course, it started from this kind of spoofy videos. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever watched those. That uh, I have. If you, if you, yeah, the yeah with Michael you know, Coco and, and the Marina and the, yeah, yeah, that whole yeah, write a new song. Yeah, no, it's really yeah. it's very hilarious where well, they turn whatever Jackson whatever it took, smooth. you know, yeah, yeah, no, and these guys out of Atlanta. The Yacht Rock Review, yeah, and uh, they took that and they were doing that material, and they decided to go with that name. And mm -hmm. I think they had a lot to do with it becoming legitimate. You know, I do too. I talked to them too. They were great. Um, they are. They're a great thing. Okay. Well, let's go uh, track by track. One last little bit of history for people who are listening. This was, I believe, recorded in 1982 at the famed Sound City, which Dave Grohl made that. Uh, Great documentary yeah. about recently, and yeah, um, pictures of me in that. Okay, that's right. That's right. Um, I I think One's I saw that label, before. I... But there's a few other ones really? as well. Yeah, well, you know, it happens. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if we go track by track, the first one is Full Moon Fire. I'm 
And I've got to ask, you know, why fool instead of full? Why, what, where was the seed of that idea? Did you think, ooh, that might be clever? How did that happen? Oh, I love to play with words, you know, so there's that part of it. And I've always been a night person. Mm. So I felt like, you know, the, not necessarily always the darker side of me came out at night, but, uh, you know, other creative elements, which are often, you know, a little bit different than the norm of the day. And so I just thought of the metaphor of a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And so, and I thought, you know, self-deprecatingly, fool uh, for being, you know, what, what at the end it says, you know, it's so hard to say sometimes the darkness, you know, mm-hmm. conquers the day, defeats the day. And so, yeah, it's like, you know, that part of yourself that uh, you might not necessarily feel that great about or that proud about, that mm. kind of, you know, secret self that uh, mm-hmm. I'm an only child also. So there's a certain element of that in my think- thinking. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think that's where that just, but again, it, you know, playing with words. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. And yeah. Uh, of course... Oddly, on Tom Petty's label, <laughs> he comes out with Full Moon Fever. That's true. Later, which <laughs> no uh, I, it didn't escape my attention. At the yeah. Time. Yeah. But um, yeah, and of course, I, what I love about that, that track is the uh, David Lindley um, electric fiddle solo. Which is, is that uh, what it is? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, I, you know, all these credits are on my inner sleeve. So I, yeah. I'm going to definitely have to send that to you before you well there are some in the uh in the cd reissue that i have i'm trying to think if that was on there some of the uh, electric fiddle oh yeah no there it is i'm sorry i skipped over it um i wrote a lot of this stuff down because i want to make sure i give credit where it's due with people who really you know stood out in a lot of these songs did you was Mm -hmm. that song did it crack the top 40? Did it uh, get some decent airplay? Were, is, I remember watching a video of you on American Bandstand. Was it mm-hmm. to play this song or was it something else? Um, I was on there three times and I did do this song on it. Okay. Um, I, I, I was on there for my first couple of records and also for this last okay. one. Okay. Um, but um, it did. I mean, to my knowledge, it got to 36 or 38. Okay. And that might just be on Cashbox and not Billboard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I always, and I made a point of saying this is the first song that uses the word lycanthropy, which is the correct term for werewolfism, that cracked <laughs> the top 40. And so, you know, that, <laughs> um, but some people have disputed that to me. But yeah, mm-hmm. now that goes into another element of the the demise of this record. There was a well, I guess it doesn't matter that I tell I name names here. Um, uh-huh. The promo man was a guy named Dino Barbas, who at the meeting that we had, as this was riding high on its bullets, told me next week I got all the stations in my pocket. And mm-hmm. so we're not going to lose the bullet. Sure enough, must have mm-hmm. lost one of those stations because it lost the bullet. And that happened just as uh, Irving took over. Oh. So I actually had this meeting. I went in to, to meet with Irving and say, you know, sort of plead my case and say, well, you know, Magnet Steel lost his bullet twice. And mm. Columbia believed in it and they mm-hmm. made it 
fell through, as they say, and, and he would say, you know, Walter, the record is over. <sighs> but, 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 you know, you don't understand, Walter, the record is over. Uh-huh. Oh, I understand. <laughs> oh, <it laughs> and now, he, now, another aside, of course, my favorite uh, rec- place to eat in L.A. is a place called the Apple Pan, which hmm. has been there since 1947 in Westwood. And it's just this great burger place. And Irving just bought the Apple Pan. Did he? Like, oh, no. Talk about <laughs> yeah, cognitive dissonance. Oh, my yeah. God. How? How can I eat there now? But, oh, I know that feeling. Yeah, I, I want to say something yeah. real quick because I get I, I, since starting this, I think one of the questions that I get asked the very most is, "What is the most common reason?" Because I I like to seek out legacy artists, some of whom have mm-hmm. had great careers, some had were one hit wonders. It's been up and down, and I get asked mm-hmm. a lot, "What is the one thing that a lot of them have in common?" That's a reason for their careers being wherever it is today and my answer to that is almost always corporate politics it's almost Mm -hmm. always something out of their control and you're illustrating that right here it's almost always the a and r man that signed them that worked really hard to make their first album a hit got fired and the new guy had someone else in mind and all that money went somewhere else or what it's always that it's almost artists themselves seems like it yeah i know and yeah. and ironically of course irving i'm not sure if he was Lindsay's manager at that point but you know he became Lindsay's manager mm-hmm. he is to this day in Lindsay's mm-hmm. manager mm-hmm. um so you know mm-hmm. it's personal experience that that colors my view of these things mm-hmm. but but i do believe that that the you know record company politics in both cases with columbia and with with Backstreet mm-hmm. uh, had at least a contributing factor in, in why it didn't keep happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I, back at Columbia, when I went out on that uh, the third album, the Hi-Fi album tour, I would, you know, get together with people at different stations who had seen me the year before mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. Ascendancy, and they would go, well, what's going on with Columbia? They're not, they're not really promoting a record, you know, it's like... Mm-hmm. Really, you know, yeah. They said, you know, well, you know, Buckingham Knicks aren't on here. It's like, oh, gee. Yeah, I mean, and so what do you do about that? You just have to try and plug through and hope that it doesn't. But yeah, yeah, and I and I, I'm not surprised that because you know, I I really do consider myself very fortunate to have had the success that I had, and especially knowing so many really talented people with really great records that mm-hmm. somehow it didn't happen for. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, uh, At least you got your shot, I guess. Um, I, I definitely did. And I, you know, you I've did. been able to continue doing it. Totally. It's been, you know, despite it being uh, different uh, arenas as it yeah. were, yeah. but uh, sure. And, okay. uh, yeah. You know, from the beginning, I always felt like I was I was a songwriter, and that's what I still consider myself. Mm-hmm. I wound up doing that Hoot Night at the Troubadour in 76 with this band called the Magneto Band, and mm. we had seven songs, I wrote six of them, and I sang one of them, and the other guys sang the other ones. And at the end of that performance, I was offered a deal from the label UA in Britain, UK. Mm. And and I said, well, what you mean 
wait, you want me to sing this song? Yeah, yeah, we want you to sing. I was like, are you kidding? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, I've had this insecurity about my voice for years. So, you know, it's, Interesting. Uh, it's a, uh, well. Huh, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, we, let me get on the couch and we'll talk for a few hours. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love singing and I love, and I think that I've learned to do it pretty well. Mm-hmm. But having uh, Lindsay and Stevie on those first couple albums really bolstered my confidence, and yeah. uh, and you know, Good. and I and along the way, I think I've picked up some some techniques as far as how, mm-hmm. how to sing. So yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about track two. Maybe, maybe. Great little revved up power pop song that has that excellent power pop organ in it. Yeah, yeah, I love that uh, Farfisa sound. Yes. Skip Edwards is playing that, and again, David Lindley contributes on this. And you know, another little sidelight on the David Lindley connection. When I moved to California in 1974, it was at the behest of a guy named Chris Darrow. And Chris was in Kaleidoscope and Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. He played with uh, Linda Ronstadt, and that's how I met him, when I met Linda and actually Don Henley and Glenn Fry at the same time, when they were touring and they came through D.C. in 1970. And uh, and so Chris wanted to pr- promote and produce Sageworth, which was my college band, mm-hmm. and then half the band thought it was a great idea, the other half didn't. Ultimately, when the band broke up, I decided I was going out there, and, and so I got there, and Chris lived in Claremont, not in L.A., and it was like, oh, okay, and then he was on UAUK, which ultimately is partly why I got that deal off mm. to me, and uh, <clears throat> he was about to do a tour, but they had uh, pulled his tour support, so he needed an accompany us. And he asked me if I wanted to do it, and so I did, and I went over. I was in L.A. for two weeks, and then I wound up going to England for a month. And so that was uh, kind of how I met the guy who ultimately offered me my deal. Uh, but, um, okay. but Chris, in Claremont, his sister was married to David Lindley. And, oh. and, so, and I had met Jackson in 72 when he was promoting his first album and our band was kind of opening for him and for Sandy Denny mm. and Richard Thompson nice. as a matter of yeah. at the bitter end for five nights in, mm. in the village. And so, um, 
so I knew Jackson and I got to know David and as I was struggling around LA in that year I basically became David Lindley's valet I would drive him into town and he would pay me for that and I would get to hang out at the rehearsal studios and then my first year I decided to go back to the East Coast because it really wasn't happening yet and I had gotten there and by the time January rolled around, I got a call from Jackson Brown to come out and mm. join his band. And so I came back to L.A. and, you know, and I was playing with mm -hmm. David. And, but I think David is amazing. He was yeah. like the best guitar player I'd ever met. And he was still practicing, you know, five or six hours a day. And I was like, oh, my God, there's no Really? Wow. You know? And so, yeah, yeah he, but okay. he is just a master of tone and taste and technique the three huh. t's <laughs> yeah the three t's yeah no he was great and so that's basically how i got to know david okay and uh, being in, in claremont okay. out there. Um, and so yeah but maybe maybe of course the sidelight to maybe maybe is skip edwards played keyboards on that mm -hmm. did that organ and then a few years later skip went on to play with uh, dwight yoakam yeah, and, I love Dwight. And if you listen to a song of Dwight's called Fast As You, you might mm. hear an echo of Maybe Maybe in there. Really? I certainly do. Okay. Yeah. And so, Good, okay. I'll you, check that out again. Listen yeah, to so it again I mean, it that. starts with that same, almost the same riff, and instead of Maybe Maybe, he says, Maybe I'll be fast. Ah, uh, so, okay. You know. <laughs> I'll look into it. Yeah, um, check that out. Okay. Sour grapes uh, portion. No, well, this is so funny because you. This has come up a few times. The thriller video, you know, all yeah. these connections. Full moon fire, full moon fever. It happened. Mm -hmm. It seems to be happening. Um, well, I think what happened with this album was I had a certain cachet and a certain uh, thing because of having that hit and then sort of going away, but having good critical response to my songs and whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and it. And I don't know. I mean, there were a few more on this album that I quote and talked about other things. But anyway, okay, we we'll well, get to that when we get. To yeah, that. well, let's do the reverse of that because when I listen to track <laughs> three, "Animal Lover," which is you know start starts out with you pulling a Tarzan, that song sounds <laughs> exactly like what Adam and the Ants were doing with the Burundi black. You know, uh, drums and bow wow wow with I want candy and that kind of stuff.
And I've, yeah, so I've more always wondered. Yeah, more that Wow than, than okay. Adam Ant, but yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, maybe that's where uh, what you said earlier would apply as far as, you know, of course you're a product of your time, and I was mm-hmm. listening to what was going on, and I certainly liked to Bow Wow Wow. I thought mm-hmm. they were very cool. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a funny kind of play on words as well mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, like you, yeah. Uh, you have, you know, an, a sex animal, not an actual animal. <laughs> you know well, I mean? yeah, no, I mean, there's, you, there's people yeah. that are animal lovers who yeah. love their animals, and there's people who are animal lovers. And so, <laughs> you know, I was young and in my... Of course. I actually have it in my notes here. It says, I'm guessing you don't actually mean animals. And, uh, no, no, certainly not that, that, uh, that uh, interpretation of it. No, right, no. right. I don't okay. combine those two uh, poles there. Right. No. <laughs> um, but, well, uh, Lindsay's in Lindsay here. Did a great and, job on that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Lindsay's in here. And I think David Lindley might be in here as well, right? No, not on this one. No? Okay. It's Tim and me playing guitars on this. Okay. And Mike Huey doing the drums. And John Selk, he's just so strong. He was my bass player all those years. And uh, mm. I just think he was the most solid guy in the band. And, uh-huh. and he and Mike had played together with the Bellamy brothers. And so oh, they really? had a good uh, symbiosis between them, the way they played. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah, this is, a, this is a fun little song that sounds like a guy who's inspired by Bow Wow Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, I want to do a little bit of that. So I'm glad. I That's what I heard. And I'm glad that you are confirming that but you do it well again going back well, yeah. this well, is you a, know this we're all influenced sure i don't that's think what I, I mean. was ripping them off but no. I, no this whole album as i've said is an example of a guy who you would think is one thing uh ch- sort of metamorphizing into the the sound of the time and doing it as well or better than the people who are sort of you know put up as being the hallmarks yeah. of this period that's well, my I appreciate view. that Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. We got to talk about track four. Such a shame because Christine McVie sings back Mm -hmm. upon this and it's beautiful. Oh, we. Yeah. 
sings with Annie McAloon, who, if I remember right, Annie... Um, McLoon, yeah. She was McLoon. also on Magnum Steel. Yeah, she she's also been around was in my college while. band. Okay, we I went thought, to Georgetown I thought so. together. Yeah. So, yeah, Annie and I go yeah. way back. Those and, two uh, just make magic. Their voices are beautiful on this. I agree. I think that uh, Stevie always seemed to get the limelight more so in that thing, but Christine, mm-hmm. I think, was incredibly solid and uh, just so beautiful with her mm-hmm. her songs you know yeah. there's a few songs that, along the, through the years that she's come in and sang with me on oh, really? most of them are in the, like the lost album there's one mm-hmm. called uh, silvery sleep that she sang on with me mm-hmm. but yeah she also shares my birth date even though oh, she's really? a few years older than i am yeah huh. so that's kind of a wow. cool thing okay you yeah know, and this is, I think it's beautiful. Um, it's also, according to the sleeve of the album, the third song in a row that is three minutes and 19 seconds. A little bit of trivia for people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. That's it's what it says. Yeah. Um, so when it's you true. call, are you maintaining friendship? You must be maintaining friendships with people like Lindsay and Christine. And they hear you're making an album. And you say, why don't you guys come down and, you know, jam with us or whatever how does yeah, this work certainly at this point that that okay. was the case well yeah it uh and i've stayed friends with these people through the years mm-hmm. uh, it's not like we stay in touch so much mm-hmm. although a little bit with Lindsay. but um yeah no i always loved christine and and you know my my entry to the the world of fleetwood mac was very much uh, through the lens of Lindsay and Stevie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and that gradually I got to know the other people in the band and felt a little more comfortable mm. around them. But uh, yeah, it was very much uh, Stevie and Lindsay's friend yeah. going to these shows, and mm. uh, you know. And at that point, I was the one who was sort of drawing them away from mm. their new home there, and so. I, I always felt a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit cautious about pushing that. But, but yeah, they, they, you know, for yeah, a number of years there, it was great to be able to be in their ilk. I played on their softball team and went to their <laughs> Halloween parties. And oh, that's great. I, Richard Dashett does this thing every now and then. He'll write about some of his memories on yeah Facebook. on Facebook. Was, I'm friends with him too. Also, yeah. And yeah. so that last thing about Tony Curtis. It's been one of my stories for years about smoking a joint with Tony Curtis <laughs> and watching uh, Forbidden Planet. No, it's, oh, uh, that's great. Yeah. I love so, it. Um, so yeah, let me so, ask you. Oh. So it was during this time that, that they were around. You know, I was able yeah. to, you know, sort of call up Christine and go, hey, I'd like you to sing on this. You know. Okay, that was going to be was, my question. Was, and that would, of course, <clears throat> also highlight the fact that there's no Stevie on this record. Mm-hmm. And Mm, you know, good point. Lindsay, Lindsay and yeah. Christine. Um, I think they paid me back on that album they put out where they do that line about you're the magnet on the steel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that song. It was, you know, when they they couldn't do the Fleetwood Mac album because Stevie wasn't around. And so they just went oh. ahead and did that record with Christine and Lindsay together. Oh, yeah. I, have never, I haven't heard that album. Yeah, there's one song, the one that they were promoting. I even forget the name of it, but yeah, 
but where they where they make that little nod. I didn't know I that. Nice. Appreciate it. That's yeah. great. So when you yeah. wrote this song, were you, at, or when you maybe I should say when you were recording this song, you're in the studio. Are you thinking to yourself, you know what the song really needs is Christine McVie. I wonder if she would come down and sing on it, or was the intent to have her sing on more things, or what's the political? How does this work politically? Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure. Okay. That. Um, I know that I always did want to have her on one of my records, and this seemed mm -hmm. like a good one to do it on. This was also a record where I reunited with with Tom Moncrief and Annie McLoon. There we had a kind of a falling out the previous mm -hmm. album of this, and so I I really can't say I don't you okay. know I was just curious. I love being able to sing with Christine, and it was yeah. you know I thought this was a great tune for it. You know, and this album is an interesting blend of, you know, you go, obviously, my songs are written about my relationships, and this album has kind of an overlap of a previous relationship and a current relationship in this, mm. and the, uh, the lyrical content in this one. I wonder. Previous, the previous ones. Yeah. But, um, you know, songs come together, and, and they're usually more songs than you record and you yeah. pick them on their merit as much as anything i think and how much the recording sounds good you know yeah i i, I want to ask you more about the ladies in your life that may have uh, influenced some of these i'll get to that a little bit more when we get to one of the other songs but um for for track five star of my heart this was i guess the second single off of this album but it probably didn't do much right No, I think I got the only box of this that was in that meeting that I referred to with yeah. Irving Azoff. Right. He, he said, here, here's a box of your records. And I said, oh, oh. does that mean you're not going to promote it? Yeah. You know, basically that's what it was. But yeah, of course, anyone who uh, is halfway uh, aware of how these records go, after the success of Magnet and Steel, I always felt like, well, maybe I should throw another... Six eight song in there somewhere. I wonder. And so yeah, and so I've done that pretty much along the way up until mm -hmm. True Songs. Even there's one mm -hmm. on there called uh, um, Night Waking. Mm -hmm. So you know, I figure I like that style anyway, and I like exploring it. Uh, 
the uh, the last stroll on the last stroll. Mm-hmm. Why me? The last stroll is also that that album six eight. Uh, Okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and this one is that. But it also was about Tammy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we met after my Magnetic Steel success, and I it was always kind of a little touchy in my mind about the subject matter of Magnetic Steel, and, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to write one for Tammy, and that's what this one was. I'm glad, it, I'm glad you did. Uh, one thing I saw in line somewhere, I think this was on Discogs, is that the B-side, apparently, of this song was a song called Joyce? <laughs> yeah, that's a lost song. I don't have a copy of that anymore. Okay, and I, I couldn't find it on YouTube or anything. Yeah, no, it's a, it's the, that's a very uh, 50s-style doo-wop kind of mm. song, you know, and it uh, relates unfortunate encounter I had with... Uh, a lady named Joyce who did, in fact, give me the clap. Oh! It was actually a non-specific urethritis, I guess. To be really technical about it. And that was that was the name of that song. Oh, that's Maybe great. that's another reason why it uh, didn't succeed. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, man. Yeah, that's funny that's that it's listed, though. Yeah, I yeah. found that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's easier to sing than... Joyce gave me the non-specific urethritis. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, let's talk about Magnet. One thing I wanted to mention about Magnet Steel. You mm-hmm. kind of dropped a bomb on me the other day. So one of my Facebook friends posted this article that she found that she thought I would like about who inspired like these 50 love songs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's right. the actual, who's the actual Sharona from my Sharona or who mm-hmm. inspired you know, sweet child of mine. And you comment on there, Tuesday yeah. Weld, Magnet and Steel. And I'm like, not only is this Walter Egan, the guy who went out with Stevie Nicks and Pamela DeBar, <laughs> now you're dropping Tuesday Weld on us? That is crazy. Well, no, I didn't have a personal relationship with her. My my intent with writing that song was hopefully that she would notice. I mean, it even says uh, it in the lyrics, you know. But so, no, yeah, no, I wish I had... Um, at that time, of course. Okay. Um, I, she was an obsession for me for a while. But uh, yeah, and of course, Magnet was written about Stevie. So. Yeah. yeah okay. So, that's what I always thought. And then when you said, yeah, I just, well, uh, I thought, yeah, after oh my I thought about it after a while, I thought, oh, I wonder if they thought. But yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you know what? Let us because think songs whatever, are written because about that real is awesome. people, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Necessarily okay. in the intimate sense of personal okay. relationship. Well, yeah. you, uh, you've proven, so Walter, that you can do anything. Bomb, no, I love that bomb. And uh, like I said, you've proven <laughs> that you can do just about anything. And so I thought, wow, the great Walter Egan and Tuesday Well, that is even, well, that's amazing too. Well, maybe I should start a rumor and then we'll see how You should. Goes. You should. I'll help you. I'll, we'll further. Yeah, you, you can yeah. sort of think. You can, you can, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Know. I'll what do what I can. Um, okay, track six. Now, I don't know because I have a CD and not the original vinyl. Would this have been the first song on side two or the last yes. song on side one? First song on side two. Yeah, okay. there's five songs on first side, six on okay. side. Like No Other One, this is probably my second favorite song on the album after Full Moon Fire.
I, yes, I love the galloping beat that's going on here. It sounds almost a little bit country, in fact, but not too, still power poppy. But I thought this is a, like I could see Walter guest starring on the Dukes of Hazard and singing this at the <laughs> Boar's Nest, you know, or something like that. But uh, great backing yeah, vocal. I should have had you managing me. I, I should. I would be around. good at that. Are you kidding? And uh, but yeah, I just thought you know when when I was mentioning earlier, I read a review somewhere that said if you're a fan, like I said, of Marshall Crenshaw or Cheap Trick, you got to check this out. And I thought this is a prime example of Marshall Crenshaw is one of my very favorites. I think he's one of the greatest songwriters. Oh yeah, ever. I think he's great. Yeah, I me do too. too. Yeah. yeah, and this song I've sounds just like something he would have done. Really, you two would be great yeah. together. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a friend named Pat Horgan who kind of a manager type and lives up in New York for Gypsy, I think. And um, he occasionally tries to include me in his schemes and plans. And he's good mm -hmm. friends with the Smithereens. And I guess the Smithereens oh, are yep. doing shows with replacements for they Pat. Yep. And uh, Marshall's been doing shows with them. And he's said that he's been talking to them about me doing that you know taking oh, that position a little bit Walter. So i think oh that would be gosh. great yeah no that would be a, a lot yes. of fun for me as much as I love you and Marshall, I love the Smithereens even more they're one of my favorite oh, yeah. like, top 10 ever and so i've been hot on this on the trail of the these shows because they don't play over here in Denver and i'm dying to see them and if you yeah, got to front them the that would be awesome yes yeah i know yeah. and you know and the idea of it is you don't do your own songs you do Mm -hmm. the smithering songs and whatever covers they did and so mm -hmm. yeah and so Ooh, i mean awesome. i would love to do that uh, but you know the wonderful thing about this business is people throw things at you like that all the time and <laughs> if you start counting on them you know, you maybe they yourself. stick maybe they don't yeah yeah but uh i like the idea that the, that it's being floated around yeah true it's very cool um, thing okay any stories behind the creation of Like No Other One? You know, I think that was just a regular love song for, uh, and that was for the new love rather than the old love. Mm, Whereas Too Much Love is more about the old relationship than the new one. And that, Got it. And as we move through there. And and that, of course, that line, Too Much Love Drives a Man in Things from, mm -hmm. uh, from Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Great Balls of Fire. That's right. And so... That was uh, where I got that line from, but I, I don't think there's any deep meaning behind either of those. I think those okay. are just, you know, what I think were good songs. Yeah.
Yeah, too much love is only two minutes, but it's this two-minute-long burst of just revved-up rockiness. It's yeah. also really great. And there's excellent piano in there, I believe, from Skip Edwards again. That is Skip on that one, okay. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And a great yeah. solo. Are you the one playing the solos on here? I do play the solo. Nice. Yeah. You're a much but, better guitarist uh, than people realize. Your guitar, well, I think you're the one doing the solos in Full Moon Fire, too, maybe. Well, Full Moon Fire is the David Lindley uh, oh, it, oh, okay. electric fiddle That's solo. Right. That's but, right. Uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, you know, yeah. I'm pretty, getting pretty good at guitar after you got it all. playing 50 yeah. years. I'm starting to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lead guitar player for Randy and the Rainbows for a few years. In oh, the 90s. yeah. And when I was living in New York, and I was That's bass right. player for Spirit for three years in the 80s. I remember that, too. Whole other yeah, yeah. Okay. crazy world thing but yeah well i appreciate that and uh, sure and you know and when i do my shows that uh it's part of it it's like you know good. hey i'm playing guitar what yeah good <laughs> um okay track eight i'll be there this one begins with a beautiful like acapella choir thing going on John Selk and, and I think it's Tom Oncrup singing in there. Okay, I, I wonder. I'm sure Annie is singing in there. And are you, I assume you're singing in there too. And the reason I mentioned yeah. this is because you just said how self-conscious you are. You can be, I guess, of your voice. But it is gorgeous. <laughs> it's just ethereal. And I thought, who who thought of that? Like, who are, are you the one that's like, you know what would really kick off this song nicely, guys? Is if we just did like a choir. And you got four or five people standing around the mic hanging from the ceiling or whatever, like it's Motown. <laughs> well, that's very much what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this album I, I did, especially with uh, Dwayne Scott, who was the engineer in the first album, on Fundamental Role. But on this, you know, I was the main producer on this album. Mm-hmm. And so as we were doing that arrangement, you'll notice that that same background part comes in later on mm-hmm. in, the, in the track. And it's like, well, hey, man, why don't we start this? You know, it's mm-hmm. one of those things where 
you hear it and you go, wait, this is going to be good. And then, of course, making, figuring out how to do it without, you know, are we going to tack it on the front? Are we going to do it? Are we going to make it? And and we actually did it over a track. And I think if you listen really closely on headphones, you can hear the, the, uh, the musical track that oh, dropped really? out of there huh. through people's headphones as we were singing the really? opening there. Okay. Yeah. I'll do it again. So, uh, that's something. Yeah. And of beautiful. course, you did not having the vinyl on the uh, the vinyl. Those were the days where we would start to etch little phrases in the inner groove. Really. And on this one, it uh, on one side it says lycanthropy or lycanthropic. <laughs> Like lycanthropic uh-huh. uh, on the one side, and then on the other side, Walter Egan, Alter Ego, Walter something like mm. But yeah, that was our little fun. That, and we picked that up from the from those uh, new wave artists, uh-huh. like Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe coming yeah. out of England. They were doing that, and so we thought, huh. cool too. Speaking of those guys, something else that. Um, that dawned on me. I was reading reviews of the album, and one of the reviews mentioned that um, what a great album this was for its time. That doesn't include any synthesizers, and I thought that's mm-hmm. true. This is very organic. It's all kind of you know straightforward. There's not synths or yeah. that you yeah. know the new wave sound. It, Grant, you may have been performing in a skinny tie like the Knack or whoever else was doing this <laughs> at the time, but you weren't incorporating the synths. Was that a conscious choice? Yeah, it was very okay. much so. I was, I was always guitar-oriented and uh, didn't see any need to, to to go there. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, on Not Shy, we were one of the first to use syndromes mm. in the studio and the <laughs> kind of thing in the background on... Uh, it's on uh, Star in the Dust, I Want It, Make It Alone, Unloved, Just the Wanting... The blonde and the blue just the wanting. Oh, just the wanting. Just the okay. wanting. Yeah. 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 Just I, uh, the wanton, as we used to say. <laughs> in the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, track nine, Tammy Ann. This is the song for your new bride, right?
Indeed, yes. And uh, the semi-risque lyric of it, which was uh, translated. You know, at the time, I had never heard the phrase front buddy. And I always thought B-U-D-D-Y was my uh-huh. front buddy. It was my, my best friend kind of thing. And then she said, no, no. <laughs> Is your back buddy and your front? I was like, oh, no. Well, it's cool. Let's go with it. See if anybody picks up on it. I didn't. I'm not a lyric guy. I don't pay that close attention to lyrics. And Mm -hmm. obviously I can see now that I should because you've got all these hidden meetings in so many of your songs. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think I should print the lyrics sometimes. Uh, Even before my live shows, I feel sometimes I should print out the lyrics to the songs I'm going to do just because you might want to you know I'm a lyric guy I'm very much word oriented mm-hmm. I do word plays and I do you know twisted cliches and things and I think they just sort of slide on by most mm-hmm. of the time but but I think this is a really catchy tune I think Tammy is like the most uh, you know 50s-esque kind yeah. of uh, song yeah. on this album this yeah it's kind of a rockabilly so. um this i should say yeah. for people was the b-side to full moon fire and mm-hmm. um it uh it also has a really great coda it's it's it sort of ends <laughs> in this really fantastic way again this is one of these <laughs> i'm a firm believer of these little sprinkled mat you know bits of pixie dust where it's an mm-hmm. idea that elevates a song beyond what it could have been otherwise with just, you know, just this one little idea. And this coda is one of those examples, I feel like. Well, it's great to hear that you pick up on that because that's always been, when we were working on those first couple of albums and Lindsay and I were talking about these things and, you know, we always say, this is going to make it a piece. This Mm. will be a piece, Mm -hmm. you know, like a real, you know, piece de resistance. And that's true. I mean, those are the things that I love listening to music and of course I'm a huge music fan and so mm-hmm. I do hear these things in songs and and I love these little quirky things mm-hmm. you know and that, mm-hmm. that uh, so I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one yeah no I love it that's, that's yeah. very cool yeah and Tom Moncrief plays 12 string on the right. he, he's such a great guitar player he uh, was a wonderful foil through all those years when we played together. Okay. And on I, this I'm track, actually, Mike Mike Huey doesn't play drums. It's actually Mike Rito Reed, who was in a uh, oh. called Jiva. And uh, they were kind of also on the fringe of the Fleetwood Mac circle of friends. And, uh, okay. And so I'm, I'm not sure. I, you know, coming back and listening and looking at the notes on this, I'm really not sure how he wound up playing drums on this. Huh. It was just, uh, we were having fun. Why don't you play? Okay, cool. Yeah. Or something like that. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't remember. I should, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. that happens. I should get... But I do love that song, and I think it was really fun. The vocal arrangement and Annie does a great job. Yeah, it. it is a great song. Um, you mentioned your bandmates, I guess, Mike Huey and John Selk. I looked both of them up because they sound they're both perfect on this album, but neither of it didn't look like neither of them had done, you know, a ton else outside of working with you on this, I guess. Well Some they were before. John Selk was in that sort of Claremont clique of people uh, with Chris Darrow and David Lindley and and he had played with uh he played with Johnny Halliday when they played in England in America. 
he had played with Johnny Tillotson in the, that 50s kind of guy. That mm. I'm not sure if you remember him. Mm. But uh, And then, of course, the Bellamy Brothers, and that's where mm. Mike came in. Okay, yeah. Mike was out of Dothan, Alabama, or jo- Georgia, I think. Dothan, Georgia. And he uh, also played in the uh, one of those New Colony Six, or what, I forget the... Mm. Which one? One of those that I don't know, was it was the one that did the song Tracy. I don't know. Oh, okay. We never at the time it was somewhat passe, so we didn't really talk about it much. But yeah, and then he went on and played in a band called Blue Steel, and he did a record with uh, Gene Clark. I think the last Gene mm. Clark record with uh, Carla Olson. Michael might have produced that and certainly played on it. Michael's a really solid drummer. He was yeah. he was a good guy. Okay. And, uh, you know, and the great rhythm section is the basis of a lot of great songs. Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, I've yeah. learned through the years, you know. Good. Do you, you keep think, in touch oh, with either yeah. of those guys? <clears throat> John Selk, I do. I haven't, uh, I, I, I'm still in touch with Skip Edwards, and Skip is in touch with oh, Huey, okay. and so okay. a little bit that way. And, uh, and John Selk still lives in Claremont, hmm. which it's funny to say because when I moved out there in 74, I used to drive into L.A., you know, almost daily because I thought I was moving to L.A. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I was out know, there to hang out and do L.A. stuff. And, you know, it's 40 miles east, and so it's an 80-mile drive every day. Hmm. And the people that lived in Claremont didn't necessarily do that very often. They were there for a reason. Uh-huh. kind of like... I'm here in Franklin now, and going to Nashville is like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, whereas when you're trying to make it, you have to go uh-huh. hang out. Yeah. And, yeah, and so now when I go out there, and I've, I go out there four or five times a year to do most of these Malibu shows, mm-hmm. but also some of my own, and uh, we always talk about getting together, and John goes, oh, I don't know, it's such a drive, and I said, yeah, so, <laughs> same feeling going out there. Yeah. So, yeah. He, huh. he, yeah, John and John actually has uh, gotten back into playing. He was out of it for a while, and he's Good. been playing with some people out there in Claremont. Good. So yeah, it's uh, it's nice to stay in touch with these people. Although, you know, I would love to reassemble that band and, mm-hmm. and just do. There was some talk about it for the 40th uh, mm. anniversary of Not Shy, and it never quite came together. Sure. Yeah, but, that'd be uh, great. You know, I wish it could happen. But of course, I think I have a great band here. Yeah, that I use now. I've got this guy Rick Lano who plays drums. He plays with Poco and mm. uh, the bass player from the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, Michael Soup Granda, mm. is my bass player. And so, uh, you know, they're pretty solid. And and Good. the drummer on most of those recordings is a guy named Ronnie Krasinski. And Ronnie lived down the block from me in Franklin. Mm. Turned out uh, he had played with Sheena Easton and. Seals and Crofts, no and the Beverly Brothers, and and you know now he plays with the Box Tops, so huh. he's an excellent drummer too. So yeah, I've got some That's pretty great. good players good. around here. Good for here. you. Okay. Yeah, I've been lucky to play with a lot of good people. Yeah. We've been talking about trying to get an early Malibu reunion mm. up uh, because uh, we're kind of losing losing yeah. friends. Our bass player died a few years ago. Oh man. While we're still above ground, we should get together and play. Mm-hmm. Cause, you know, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to, boy, it was fun playing together mm-hmm. with 
you know, from the beginning, and that's why we did it. And, and it gets lost in the business of it, and yeah. it gets lost in the, well, you're you're my sideman, and you know, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's. I always tried to make the band feel like the band. Yeah. You know, because I always wanted it to be a band, and right. I didn't want it to be. And that probably comes back to me as the leader of bands, of Sageworth, and those bands where I would write songs and I would play guitar and I would arrange, but I wasn't necessarily the front person. And, mm-hmm. and with a band, I always feel like... Uh, a little more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, it's uh, got some company there. Yeah. But uh, okay. And then, you know, so when it, it leads to this next song, actually, because when I moved to Claremont, the band that I put together, the one that did that Troubadour Hoot Night, Mm-hmm. Where I got offered the deal was with uh, um, this guy Earl Shackelford. That's what I was going to ask wrote, you about. Yeah, the next song, yeah. Earl Next Door, and, and David Millard was the other guy. And both those guys, I thought, were great singers. of Chris Darrow's and Chris helped us kind of get together we formed a band called the Ghost Riders hmm. uh, with a W Ghost Riders oh and, uh, nice in 1974 we went to Salt Lake City on Chris's dime and he produced uh, I think it was maybe five or six tracks you produced an album in six. Salt Lake City that's my hometown well well Chris Darrow did and it was in a studio Jeff Thruff was the engineer, and it was a converted church. Of course it was. (laughs) I can't remember any more about it than that. Oh, that's funny. I had no idea there was even a, you know, a mentionable or reputable studio. It would have been in, like, September of 74. Wow. And, uh, And so... And Only the Lucky was one of the songs that I did, and I think I'd Rather Have Fun was one of the songs mm. that, that which showed up later on my albums. But yeah, and uh, and so Earl, Earl was this to me, I was looked up to him and his songwriting. He's, uh, you know, he's supplied a couple of songs that I've done through the years. Mm. One on a later album, 
I guess it was um, uh, maybe Alternative mm. that uh, let go the first track on there. Yeah, what what made you decide to you know record a song written by somebody other than yourself? Why this one in particular? Did you just think it was really good and you could nail it? Yeah, basically. Um, okay. I wanted to. I, I thought Earl deserved more attention, and he was writing these great songs, and I felt. Well, there's a platform for him, and, mm-hmm. and he sings on it with me, uh, even though he's not listed in the credits here as singing on this track. He sings, he's also listed as singing on uh, Full Moon Fire. Oh, okay. On, on the sleeve. But I don't know whether, I don't understand whether it was an oversight or, you know, mm-hmm. fuzzy memories here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I really loved his songs. He had, you know, four or five great songs that I can remember okay. to this day. You know, and, uh, and unfortunately, he left this world a few uh, years ago too. Shoot. So um, you know, I think Nicky Hopkins is playing piano. And on Nicky this? Hopkins plays piano on that, which was you know, to me, a legendary yeah uh, occurrence. But That's amazing. Again, how did that happen? He is a legend. I he think he came through Greg Lewick. Oh, okay. You know, Greg Lewick, I think, had been doing some stuff with a guy named Barry Marshall in England, and I'm pretty sure that's how it came about. Uh, you know, I had never met him before he came in and did it, and he was just a really sweet guy and just the nicest guy you'd want to meet. Hmm. Jamming with Edward, you know, I yeah. could go, oh man, jamming with Edward, you know, and always <laughs> ask him about the Stones and stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, and he played on the last track as well. Yeah, stay know, all night. Stay all night. Yep. So, okay. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was quite a lineup of guest stars on yeah, this record. It really is. Um, for it to become so kind of lost in the shuffle. Agreed. As yep. it has become through the years. Yeah. Um, one, the, uh, I was going to say one thing I noticed about um, to give my two cents on Stay All Night and I don't know if this was an influence at all when I listened to the very beginning of that song it sounds I don't know if you I don't know how much Devo you listen to but the opening <laughs> um, I listen to a lot of Devo okay. to, to like satisfaction right? yes that's what I was going to say yeah. the opening drum part of Stay All Night reminds <laughs> me of that opening drum part of their version of Satisfaction which sounds sort of off kilter. It sounds almost like it's being played backwards or something.
Yeah, it's a, yeah. I'm not sure that we went for that uh, consciously, huh. but uh, now that you bring that up, uh, definitely. Well, you know, of course, this song was the one that another one on my sour grapes list hmm. um, because it it came out, you know, what six months before all that long. Uh, the uh, the Lionel, Lionel Richie, Richie. Song. and I'm, you know, and it sort of still had that that sort of mm. samba beat or whatever yeah. you call a beat on that. Huh. Um, and I think it sort of presaged <laughs> the Spice mm. Girls a little bit later on. It was like, do we really, really want to? I really, really want to. Really, really, really. You know, kind of back and forth. And, you know, that's a bit of a stretch maybe. But uh, well, hey, you know, I did it. And you we put did ideas it, out there in the ether and they yeah. get collected. What do they say? The, the good ones borrow, the best ones steal or whatever it is? Something like that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. they all, yeah. Okay. In serious form of flattery. Right, right. But, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. It, uh, things happen, and you do it unconsciously to a certain degree. And it, right. I think if I were conscious of borrowing, I, I'd make it either an obvious illusion, mm -hmm. or you know, or, or I try to change it. I, you know, yeah. there's no point in making a record that makes people want to go. Oh, I'd rather go listen to uh, you know the other person. How 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 now? You know, it's like because I know I do that when I hear. I'm I'm a fan of uh, Lana Del Rey to some mm -hmm. degree these days, mm -hmm. and when she completely steals an old song, usually bugs the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. Like there's some song that sounds just like Creep, uh, mm -hmm. Radiohead song. Yeah, and she has a tendency to take theme songs from 60s movies and turn them into some uh, and you I know see that. it can be it can be clever or mm -hmm. it can be kind of clumsy and, mm -hmm. uh, I know that when I do these Malibu's records because uh, you know on those it's my friend John Zambetti and it's always been his band and I've mm -hmm. let it be that and I've never wanted to take over that band and uh, you know He'll come up with a song that I'm occasionally will go, well, doesn't that sound a lot like, <laughs> you know, well, nobody knows. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, well, you think so. Okay. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know? And it bugs me, but yeah. uh, whatever. Okay. And, uh, you know, and I expect him to tell me if I sure. if he's putting that out there, yeah. too. Because we did a couple of albums. We just finished a new one where we're consciously trying to... Uh, reinstate the uh, the 60s uh, British Invasion Ooh, nice. songs, you know. Yeah. We did this album called Queen's English with the apostrophe after the S. And ah. Queens. Uh -huh. and, it, and that goes back to our performance at the World's Fair in 1965 where we were quoted. We, we did an interview and John did this interview and the, the announcer said, well, you do everything from surf to English sound. <laughs> what is the difference? And so John does this little explanation about it. And, and you know, after having done, I think, four surf Beach Boy-esque mm -hmm. kind of CDs, we decided to do the English sound. Oh, interesting. And we recruited everybody from the Quarrymen to to Spencer Davis. Wow. To, um, you know, the guy, David Carr, who played mm -hmm. in The Shadows or something. I mm -hmm. don't know. He knows more about Ian Whitcomb. Mm. Um, the, uh, you know, okay. yeah. It's, so it's got the legitimate uh, 
think it was Chad and Jeremy. Is on yeah, there. okay. You know, uh, fun. But uh, you know, it's okay. a fun thing to do. Good. But anyway, so yeah, so we. It's a fine line to walk. I know, yeah. you know the, uh, you know the Green Day put out that Foxborough hot tubs thing where, yes, where they were. It's like, whoa, isn't that the backwards riff of you know? <laughs> and that's how you do that to a certain degree. You yeah. just kind of, you know, recycle it and try to get away from it and still be familiar. Yeah. I just pulled I out some of that uh, with the burritos. Too. Well, it happens. I just pulled out. It's funny when you were saying all this. I was thinking of Green Day because I pulled out American Idiot the first the other day for the first time in a while, and most of those songs sound like variations on existing songs. You know, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of everything in there. There's a little bit of Dream On by Aerosmith. There's a little bit of The Who. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of everybody. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I wonder if they like. Are sh- are showing respect if it's obvi- like right. it, is it, or is this you know yeah. plagiarism? I don't know. Is it homage or is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure. Well, well, that's. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where you find people who are more of a real artist or or not. Yeah, you know, if they if they are able to be influenced and yet make something original from it. Yeah. yeah. Good point. But um, you're you're picky, picking out things in here that I certainly, you know, thirty years later, forty years later, mm. here didn't remember it. I mean, but that that's such a cool thing. That, well, that, good. That, that Devo. Yeah. <laughs> Devo I, it did, it wasn't enough. It was just it you're right, an illusion. It wasn't plagiarism, but it was like, ooh, I, this reminds me a lot of that kind of weird drum <laughs> loop that's in Satisfaction. Um, yeah. One thing I want to ask you about, because this is the last Walter Egan album for like 16 years. What? Why <laughs> were you? Uh, my understanding, anyway. What? What was the aftermath of this? I mean, we've established that it basically got buried, but I mean, did you? You know, what did you do after? Did you fall into a depression? Did you like screw this? I've had it. Did you go do something else? What is this? Where spirit came into the picture? What happened? So yeah. I got married in '84. My son was born in 85. Uh, during that time, we started recording the next album basically without a deal because mm. the MCA Backstreet thing was over at that mm-hmm. point because of Irving and his whole deal. So, uh, and that album surfaced as the lost album. That's what the that Mad is? Dog album. Okay. Spent, depending on who, where you, you hear it, there's an English version of that too, yeah. And so, no, I, you know, we always continue, but I, you know, I did take my foot off the pedal for a while there. I was like, well, be a dad mm-hmm. and let's have fun with that. And, mm-hmm. and so that's basically what happened. And then 86 is when I started playing bass for Spirit. Okay. And so that sort of took up the next three years. Okay. And basically early 90s, I inherited the house I grew up in, mm. in Queens, and we moved back to Queens and at that point I started playing with Randy and the Rainbows and also um, having another child mm-hmm. and so uh, those are basically were bookends to my marriage at that point mm-hmm. um, we moved I moved to, to Tennessee in 97 and then Ninety-eight, ninety-nine. I started recording what became the Walternative album, mm-hmm. and then the 
basic leftovers from that became Apocalypso Now. Okay. Which is a few years later. And um, what's the one with the car? Elegant. Yeah. Think, wasn't it? Yeah. I that think was so. the, that was the really mysterious one. That was supposed to be a physical CD that never got to be a physical CD. Yeah. The label kind of dropped the ball on that. Yeah. And of course, Raw Elegant being an anagram for my name. Oh, <laughs> I get it. Okay, I wonder. Yeah, always. Uh, yeah, there's always some kind of weird little time. I get it. And, you know. Yep. You know, of course, the last stroll being the fundamental role, the last role, mm-hmm. the last stroll, because I really felt like it was imminent that I was leaving yeah. Columbia when I did that record. Yeah, and then the Myth America one came up um, with a guy out of Florida. These days, it's, uh, I feel like if the songs exist and if they're in the world somehow, good things will happen. Good. So I've continued to, you know, and, I've, and I keep writing. So I could, I've been, I put out a CD with a woman named Beth Sass. A few years ago, um, more like an EP, it's six songs, and uh, it's called Webs. Okay. My initials and her initials put together. Oh. She sings okay. most of the leads on that. But uh, there's some really cool songs that we wrote together, very different from my own pop rock kind of things. And then, of course, there's been the Brooklyn Cowboys, for the country rock side of me, I did a couple of CDs with them for those years. And then okay. the Burritos, I was in Burrito Deluxe for one CD, and then yeah. the Burritos for another one. Okay. Yeah, you've certainly you know, been busy. Well, I appreciate the outlets for all these different kinds of songs that I write. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's a, I think, it's kind of the plus through it all. Yeah. Despite the elusive uh, image right. that it, it presents to the public, it's like, right? So is that that's the same guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's me. I love all this stuff. Well, that's why I wanted to showcase this album in particular. It's not even available on iTunes, so people are going to have to go find a vinyl or go buy the remaster or reissued version, like I did. But I just think it's a really special piece of work that sits out there and deserves to be discovered again and that's so that's why i wanted to talk to you about it i hope we well, I managed to turn that. some people onto it sure you should give me a number where i can send a text a picture of oh these, yeah uh, minor okay ones. are we talking on your cell phone well my my cell yeah, phone this number is, is this is my only number okay my cell phone number is the one that it came up oh, right course, but i'll yeah. uh i'll text you and uh, on my cell phone instead of skype and then you can reply I, or, that'd be great so. Okay, why don't you do that, and then okay. I'll, I'll snap a few shots of this. Cool. I'd love it. Yeah, well, thanks, well, Walter. Thanks for doing we'll this with me. see you again if you do another one of those Potorama things. <laughs> podcast <laughs> that was they fun. Did. That was great yeah. doing it with Gunnar and Matthew. And yeah, you were so great, course. and it was nice to see, you know, half a dozen other podcasts get excited about you being there, and you go on their shows. And we actually, that was the first one. The second year was bigger and even better more you know highly that first one i'm i'm not really involved in planning i was just invited to go and i yeah, went and right. it was fun i didn't go this past year but it does keep growing little by little and kind of figuring itself out but it was a major yeah. thing having you there a lot of people love yeah. that 
I felt yeah, like the belle of the ball because I was the guy who <laughs> invited you. So everyone was really grateful to me. I felt really cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I appreciate it. There you have it, Walter Egan. Guys, go find Wild Exhibitions wherever you can. Uh, I bought my copy, as I mentioned on here. It was the Renaissance Records reissue that came out in around 2009. I, the mix on it is a little muddy. I would prefer it was, it was a little clearer, but it's pretty much all there is if you're, a, if you're a CD collector. I think I paid like four or five bucks for it. It's really cheap and affordable. Anyway, it is so, so good. I hope we turned you on to some good stuff in here. By the way, I want to mention real quick, I get a lot of uh, questions about where this theme music is coming from. This is actually a little ditty that my brother Steve created on his phone with some kind of an app. I, I, it doesn't have a name. It's not a full-fledged song. It doesn't go any on any longer than what you hear here. It's just, I thought it was, I really liked this beat. It was a great tune. And so I thought, let's use it. And I've had a few people ask me for the file. If you want the file, drop, uh, send us a message on the Facebook page. That's probably the best thing because I think Yan, we, Yan and I both have the file. We'll, we'll message it to you if you really want it. Like I said, it doesn't even have a name. It's just this little thing that my brother did on his phone. So anyway, all right, guys, I'm trying to put December's deep dive together. We'll see. As I said, I, we kind of are abandoning the month by month format with this. We're just going to do them whenever we can and whenever it makes sense and whenever Yan has the time to produce them and put them out. Poor guy. So anyway, thanks everybody. We'll talk to you later.